Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Shackled, Doubt Surrounds All. This is the title track of their new record, Out From Within Records, Shackles from New Jersey. If you listened last week, you would have heard them on the Keystone Jam podcast mix. Sorry, this is the second version. Apparently, this entire intro did not make it, which is completely fucking embarrassing because it's quite a few minutes long. My apologies to Tim Williams. Real quick, we talked about a band from Long Island that he was friends with. At no point in time was Disciplinary in Action ever a white power band. Despite the fact that in the late 80s and early 90s, a lot of skinhead bands were starting to get that rap because there was a huge activity of neo-Nazi skinheads in hardcore. At that time, that band was never involved with it. And unfortunately, some people got blamed because of just how prevalent it was in the entire East Coast scene. Discipline Action played a lot of shows in Long Island with bands like Neglect, and they were a huge influence, especially on Tim, but they were never neo-Nazis. Again, my apologies to Tim. It's very embarrassing when an edit goes wrong and entire minutes of podcasts just disappears, and also there's important information. So real quick, yada, 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 we got shows in Philly. Go to phillyhcshows.com. Check us out on Instagram. Thank you for supporting Keystone Jam. Make sure you go to our website, TIHC Podcast, where you can go ahead and donate to Mark Fuming Mouth, who's suffering from leukemia and is in a battle with cancer. He has his GoFundMe up on our link. You can always go to our podcast, TIHC Podcast, for any links or just a way to check out the opening songs of every episode. So, without further ado, sorry once again for fucking this up. Tim, absolutely amazing guest. I hope we get to bring it back on. Now I'm going to get into our guest tonight, Tim Williams from VOD, Vision of Disorder. He would later go on to be in Blood Simple. He has new projects coming out. This is a great story. Unfortunately, it's not one of our longer ones. Hopefully, Tim enjoyed being on the show. We'll go back in maybe sometime, crack a little deeper, get further into the weeds. But anyone who was going to shows between 1994 and up, the 90s, you saw the VOD Windbreaker. You saw the VOD hoodie everywhere. I mean, their sets were legendary. And for me, I was going through a bad time. A lot of shit was going on in my life. And hardcore punk shows were the thing that uplifted my spirit. Brought me out of this fucking haze. And, I'm, and I'm, I am who I am because of hardcore. But I also, it's because of bands and because of shows that I saw and its influence and its impact and its ability to lift me up in hard times that really keeps me going to the point where now, you know, I'm on the verge of 25 years of booking shows. And I'll tell you what, that Floor Punch VOD show at the church was something special. In fact, most VOD shows was fucking special. A lot of it had to do with the talent of the band. A lot of it had to do with that perfect timing. But I'm going to tell you what, you're going to hear a story about even the most talented band with the biggest promise, all these people eyeing for the prize and pushing them. It didn't always go the way the band thought. And I like Tim's take on it. I I hope to go back now when we do Mike Gitter part two, really go deep into VOD from his perspective, from the label angle. Now we have a little bit of Tim's perspective, but it's a great fucking story. I appreciate Tim coming on the show. I'm a huge mark for VOD, and those shows were legendary to me. And so I hope you guys enjoy this one. Let's fucking go. 
Today we are talking to none other than Tim Williams from the legendary Vision of Disorder. His story starts there, but there's still a lot left to be written in the book of Tim Williams. Tim, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for giving so many of us who were in our teens some of the sets that I still to this day say there's a lot of young bands right now, Turnstile, tur- you know, even Trapped and Rice 10 years ago. So all these bands that come around, people are like, oh, it was so crazy. It's got to be one of the craziest shows you ever see. And I'm like, you still didn't see VOD at CC's or like at the PWAC or some of these places where there were like two layers of humans on top of each other to sing all the words, you know? And, yeah. and, I, and I, hold, I hold that, I hold VOD in the highest capacity of like a band that when they hit in a hardcore scene, your 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 shit was ubiquitous from the first tapes to go on further but we always start in the beginning man um where did you grow up what was the music like in your house what kind of music eventually would lead you to screaming in a hardcore band yeah well thanks for having me on the show it's it's really cool i followed uh, a bunch of them and uh obviously i know you through the scene and stuff like that so yeah man thanks for having me um to answer your question, you know, I think everybody knows I grew up out on Long Island and out in Nassau County. And, uh, you know, it was pretty cool. Average, nothing too crazy, pretty average uh, upbringing, you know. Uh, music was definitely pretty prevalent in my family's house, you know, although it was de- <laughs> it was more like Billy Joel and, and like Sunday afternoon type music. And, and uh, it was always a lot of music being played, though. My dad was pretty into music, and uh, he was always putting stuff on, or you know, basically a lot of radio stuff. But uh, music was always prevalent in the house, so I don't know if that kind of seeped into me. And uh, you know, me, honestly, for as long as I could possibly remember, I've always wanted to be some sort of singer. I, you know, when I was that young, I really didn't know what, but I, I know I was in like fourth or fifth grade and my neighbor I didn't have I grew up around all girls I have sisters and a lot of cousins and they're all girls and we all grew up kind of like on the same corner um so I didn't really get much music out of them but my my close friend of mine his older brother was the one that kind of dipped me into music and it was obviously not hardcore but it was basically you know the bands from the 80s like Motley Crue Guns N' Roses Van Halen and stuff like that and I remember for as long as way back then, when I finally saw and got a grip of what Motley Crue was, I wanted to be in a band and I wanted to be a singer. And uh, all the way back, you know, I would say as far as grammar school into junior high, I was singing along with all these types of bands and, you know, you know, singing along to their records and stuff like that, not really knowing anything about being in a band. I just knew I wanted to do that. So it kind of started like that. And, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, ninth grade came around, I don't know how far into detail you want me to go with this, but uh, ninth grade came around, I started getting into metal, like bands like Metallica, Slayer, Halloween, for some reason, was in my... Fuck uh, yeah. Yeah, was in my uh, stuff. And, uh, you know, I was starting to sing along to stuff like that, you know, and I was really getting into, like, metal now. And I'm in ninth grade and, you know... Still no sign of much hardcore, but I was definitely starting to get into metal, and I was definitely singing a lot more. Hadn't found any band or anything yet, but I was just singing. And then uh, 10th and 11th grade, I was kind of still singing around, but I guess another friend's older brother 
I guess some, somewhere around 11th grade, I was really starting to get into the doors and music like that. And I finally got the courage enough and I realized this is what I want to fucking do. And he had a little four track recorder and actually recorded me singing over a couple of his guitar riffs. And, you know, they were they were actually pretty decent. Again, no screaming yet, just singing. I hadn't found my screaming stuff yet. That kind of came a little later. And uh, I don't know if you want me to get into that. You know, I'm not sure. No, I'd love to. I'd love to get into yeah. people. People, I mean, especially because you touched on the fact that you wanted to be a singer. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it's the hardcore scene first. And then the guy just tries. It's awesome that to hear that your path was already laid out before everything else. So it's actually interesting to hear this. Yeah, it was wild. You know, I, again, for as long as I can remember, like I stated earlier, I always wanted to be a singer and stuff like that. And I was always singing along to stuff. And then basically it was all the Motley Crue and the Metallica and all that shit in ninth grade. But it was the Doors and Jim Morrison that really, I was like, that's fucking it. Like, I don't know what it was but it just really drew me in and i was writing a lot of lyrics and poetry then and probably you know a doors influence and this guy yeah he's like come on i'll play some riffs and you sing over it and i think we did two songs and he was like holy shit this shit's fucking amazing <laughs> and it came out i think the name of the song was like the forgotten world and it came out really fucking good and uh you know, we were singing, we did, I don't know if we did much more, but then about 11th grade, I reconnected with Mike Kennedy, you know, the guitar player, VOD. Um, you know, me and Mike go back to like fucking five years old. We were friends and we had, we were really, really good friends. And then we had fallings out, we were really good friends. And we had fallings out. And this was like one of the come arounds. We all kind of had a couple of mutual friends. And this was late 11th grade, early 12th grade. And Matt Baumbach was like, you got to give Tim a try, try him out. And like <laughs> Kennedy was like kind of against it because of our history. But um, we we did it. And that's pretty much kind of, you know, now I'm back into a lot of more heavier stuff and metal and hardcore starting to come around. But now it's more just, you know, my friends, we're all listening to like Sepultura, Pantera, um, all kind of stuff like that. Slayer again, all, all like the classic metal bands. Life of Agony and Biohazard was starting to like seep into like our crew. And that's when the whole hardcore screaming thing, you know, I was really into Pantera. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of my original screaming came out of shit like that. And I kind of mixed it with like a Doors kind of uh, Pantera-esque vocal style, but it was very primitive. It was very, you know, far back from where, you know, what I evolved into. But it was, those were like the, the, the breeding grounds of that whole style for me. And uh, it started getting into metal, started screaming. And then basically we all started through Biohazard, Life of Agony. We all started going to all these shows. And like, it seemed like Biohazard, Life of Agony, they were like playing all the time. And a couple of my friends were really into Biohazard. So now this is where we started to kind of get into the whole hardcore thing through bands like that, Madball and stuff like that. And then, like, VOD, very, very early, probably before we even had, I guess we might have had the name, but uh, it was more of, like, a metal thing with me, like, singing, like, a Jim Morrison-esque mid-range gruff over it, but then kind of Pantera shaped it more. But now, once we started listening to a lot of hardcore, we still came with a lot of thrashy, double bass-type parts, but there was definitely a more street sound starting to come in, and obviously my voice started to get you know, kind of go into that range as well. And that's, 
you know, that's kind of a cliff notes of how that all happened. Now, obviously I, I grew up on heavy metal. My mom right. had metal in the house early. She dated guys who were friends with Cinderella. Tom Kiefer was in the house. So nice. we relate heavily. And then it took thrash metal to kind of go, wait, there's this shit. So I'm, I'm, I'm all in. And in fact, <laughs> the first time I seen Pantera, they were opening for skid row on the slave to the grind tour. And I was yeah. like, wait, <laughs> to me, I thought like, this was the hard shit. And then I seen the Pantera. I'm like, Oh wait, now nah, there's another level here. Yeah. So, so is that like what was getting you hip? Were you guys only going to like the rock concerts, or because you're out in the island, there were smaller clubs? Like, what was your live we were, music influence at the time? We kind of like we honestly at that point, you know, we were kind of in a little bubble in the very beginning. You know, there was just kind of like our friends and shit, and we a lot of our early shows would just basically play to like our friends and like the other opening bands friends. You know what I mean? Like what, 25, 30 people at like a small shitty club called Hammerheads out on Long Island. But like for music wise at this point, you know, we were going to white zombie shows. We were going to pay obviously Pantera shows, all the, the more underground stuff would be life of agony, biohazard, like anytime those guys played, we were all there. You know, we would all go and obviously Madball would be there. And then there was obviously the whole Long Island scene, which I'm not mentioning for some reason, but bands like Disciplinary Action, Neglect, Berserkers, like those guys, huge influence on me as a singer, especially those Long Island bands, because yeah, we would go and see Life of Agony and Biohazard and Madball. We were still kind of on the outside looking in. We weren't really part of their scene yet. This is super early. This is like fucking 93 or 94. And then it was more like the, the Long Island bands, like Neglect, uh, Disciplinary Action, Berserkers. They had a very big influence. Like there was the Pantera that, that brought me to like the screaming realm. But like to shape the lyrics and the more street kind of vocal style, it was more like Disciplinary Action, Neglect. Like those bands had a really big influence on me. I'm sure you know who Neglect is. You, you probably know who DA is. And uh, the Bert Berserkers, like, I was always into, like, for me, I liked all the, a lot of the bands out there, don't get me wrong, but I needed, like, to be, it had to be, like, an aggressive style to really pull me in, you know, because that's kind of, I came out of the Sepultura, Pantera stuff, and I was, like, a diehard, I was, like, obsessed with that shit. And then, like, for me to get into a vocalist, or a band that the singer had to be like 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 more it had to be a, a more aggressive style and some of the long island bands they weren't bad at all but they just kind of weren't like that so it was more like like i said da neglect berserkers like those bands really drew me in and kind of shaped the beginning of my vocal sound and then as we kind of broke in and into the city and we were exposed to mad ball sub-zero sub-zero was big because sub-zero there's that one demo they put out with what MRP, I think is the name of the first song. It's been a while, but uh, he used a lot of vocal effects. And I remember going to see them at the, uh, the wetlands. And I was just like fucking amazed that he had all these effects over like this hardcore music. And that for me, that was it. That, that it drew me in because there was depth to it. Like right away, some of the barking, of the 80s and the early 90s vocal styles didn't appeal to me because, again, I was still from this whole Pantera, Lane Staley, even as far as Jane's Addiction, like, I absorbed all that in the early days of, you know, me, me 
kind of fortifying my style. And uh, it really had to be like this certain type of vocal that would draw me in and maybe be like, whoa, like uh, I remember seeing Madball for the first time at the Wetlands. It might have been the same show as seeing Sub-Zero. And I was just like, what the fuck is this? Like, I really liked his voice. So after I get through the voice, then I can go and look at the rest of the band. That's kind of the way I looked at music back then. Being I identified with singers, it would be that first. And if that didn't sell me, I would be on to the next thing, you know? It's cause really cool to hear the progression in you. And again, it's it's so similar to what we went through. And, it, you know, it's a weird transition to explain to people if you're not... If you're not dying to paint punk rocker or something that's hard to transition into hardcore because you got a metallic influence that you're overcoming. Right. And um, I mean, for me, I seen Sick of It All on Biohazard when I was really young. And yeah. then Madball played this really small club. And I was like, never been in a, a club that small <laughs> with people jumping off the bar. We see death metal bands, <laughs> but we were confined to one area because it was like an all ages area and a 21 right. plus area. But seeing people jumping off the bar for Madball was like that electricity, like, this shit is crazier than anything I've ever been a part of. Yeah. yeah, and I remember, you know, again, I heard Madball for the first couple of times. You know, on Long Island, it's just as like a side note. What you did out there is you, you, you know, you would hang out in your friend's car and you drive around. Like it wasn't like living in the city where you hung out in the bars, roll over the fucking place. You had to drive places on Long Island, and that's kind of the stuff we did. And I remember being to my friend's. He had like this brown Camaro with like some sick fucking sound system. And he started playing me Madball, and I was just like, what the fuck is this? And by it was dropping many suckers, so Freddie's voice, to me, I pictured like just like a death metal guy. I'm like, holy shit, I really fucking like this. This guy's voice is sick, and the music was really fucking tight, and the breakdowns were great. And then I remember going to see him, and I was just like, what the fuck? This is, this is not what I thought it was going to be, but I was completely even more blown away when I saw like more of a street hood city kid jump up and do this kind of shit it was just it was just it blew me away and it was also inspiring at the same time because i could still remember them walking in it was like a scattered wetlands sunday matinee and he came walking in like he just looked like he was maybe just part of the crowd and all of a sudden he jumps up on fucking stage and rips into it and does his thing and we were all just like what the fuck man so it was cool now, obviously, there's always been um, a Long Island influence in um, New York hardcore, but if you leave it at the earliest stages, you hear the LES people like, oh, yeah, there's that band from all the way out in Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> like like it was like a, a sojourn, but yeah. like, you know, um, there's also been a lot of bands that it was hard to break into the city to play. So like uh, even Breakdown was on here, uh, Carl. And he mentioned like breakdown was actually easier to play outside the city at first yeah. than to get in. And so as the the young VOD is trying to play more shows, what do you think it took for you guys? Was it playing on the island and getting noticed to come to the city? Like what was your branch to get into the city and play? It was just kind of like, you know, by then, all right, so now we're kind of the band that people kind of know of us, like in the early days, you know, we played every place we could possibly play. So there wasn't, we played the shit out of Long Island, you know, we played the Angle, we played fucking uh, the Roxy, the Right Track In, like I said, the first couple of shows we did at Hammerheads and they were just getting bigger and bigger. So we were kind of just breaking our way into long island and it's just like it was just like all right where are we gonna play now and it wasn't like so much 
as somebody told us to do it. It was just there was some openings at the Bond Street Cafe, which was that that was yeah. the first place we played in the city. And obviously, I don't know if it was a fuck. It was so long ago. It might have been a weeknight, but whatever it was, it was probably it wasn't that many people there. And that's a tiny ass club anyway. But it was just kind of like a natural progression. All right, we're going to go try and break into the city now. Like we're doing pretty good on an underground note. Like we haven't even really got to where VOD started to get pretty big. But we were doing all these clubs and doing well out there that it was kind of just a natural thing. Let's try and play some shit in the city. Like, you know, we watched, we were in the, back then you would look in the Village Voice. Like you go to a local record store, slip disc records in Valley Stream and you open up the fucking paper and find out you go right to the sunday matinees who's playing at cvs and you'd see all these fucking bands so i think somebody called the bond street or somebody we knew got us in there and i remember we played there and it was it was it was crazy it was a whole new world it wasn't that many people there but we didn't know anybody it was just us kind of you know hey guys fucking we're here to play and you know we just fucking launched into it you know we were a pretty tight band we were very we took it very fucking seriously. Like the whole partying thing hadn't really hit the band yet. Like everybody was pretty damn serious. And we, we rehearsed constantly and we were super fucking tight, you know? So whenever we played, we turned some heads, you know? I'm not going to say we turned every head, but we managed to always walk away with a couple more fans. And then there were like those early, I can't even remember the name of it, but like, they're like the really early, like Super Bowl of hardcores, like the really early ones with like bands like Carnivore and shit on it. And I think we played one of them. And a lot of times we were being chauffeured around by the, the drummer and the singer of Disciplinary Action. Like those guys, again, I go back to them a lot because they had a really big influence on me as a person, on me as a singer, and just us as a band. And they were, you know, they were all older than us. They were. Honestly, if you ask me, one of the best hardcore bands that ever mounted a stage and one of the most terrifying. You would not, they, you know, these guys were a whole different fucking breed of person. They, I, they, me and my friends were just talking about a couple of them like last week. And you don't, you don't meet people like this and they don't fucking make people like this anymore. Those guys were fucking scary. And they took us under their wing. You know, they were really cool guys. And they'd be driving us to fucking shows, and they'd kind of be ushering us in and stuff like that. And they knew a lot of the people in the city, for better or for worse. And, uh, you know, they helped us out a lot. And so that was kind of the Bond Street, some of the early Super Bowl hardcores. You know, obviously we played CBs here and there. But the very early break-ins to the city were definitely like those kind of scattered shows. And then we'd bring it back out onto Long Island and play out there. And, you know, the show's... We're going from 50 people to 200 people. And, you know, things were starting to starting to ramp up and we were starting to make a name for ourselves. And then, you know, we got so loud that people on Long Island and in the city couldn't really uh, ignore it anymore, you know? Do you think um, in this timeline, since we were talking about Bond Street, how soon did you link up with Kevin? Was that Kevin, quick or was that... Kevin? Yeah, was that quicker or did that come a little bit later in the timeline? We're that came about because now? the Bond Street was really early. That was a so little. It was, so it was that. like Bond Street, did a couple demos, and then you know the heat. Because I'll tell you, even at the earliest stages, I uh, I was really big on zines at the time, right? And so you'd see reviews, obviously with Rick to Life, um, things travel quicker than you think, and um, I just remember it went from. A couple people being like, "Oh yeah, there's that Vision of Disorder band." Then it was like, 
way they're coming down and playing. I've never seen you guys play um, a, a big show at very first because you guys would come down to Pennsylvania eventually yeah. and it'd yeah. be like a smaller clubs. But when do you think it was a moment? When did the first moment of like a holy shit show happen for you? Like where you're like, Jesus Christ, like, like not, you don't have to go month and date, but like, right, right. Was it, like, when did you start going like, holy fuck, we got something here? Well, I would say probably around, you know, the, a little bit after the Bond Street, you know, we started to stick our neck out and we started to do like Boston. I remember we played Boston with Converge on like a Sunday afternoon. There was also the skate park shows, but this wasn't at the skate park. This at like some cafeteria. And then, you know. When we started to do, like, we we drive to Pennsylvania and we play CC's and the place would be fucking packed. Like, we started to feel like, hey, man, things are starting to, starting to happen. I'm so, glad you, I'm so glad you brought up CC's because that's, yeah. like, the first time I saw you there was, like, holy shit. Yeah, like, CC's was, you know, I heard you mention it, and I, I don't mind talking about it because it was probably one of the finer memories we had in, in the early days. You know, we did... All right, so we kind of broke into the city a little bit. We're still doing pretty well in Long Island. And then we started to dip out. We started to go do shows in Jersey with, like, Bulldoze. And that, <laughs> those were always pretty wild. I, I can't. I think it was Studio One was the name of the venue we used to play a lot out there. Yeah, North Jersey. And then we used, again, we played in Boston once or twice. And then we had a friend, that band, I don't know, you may, I'm sure you know him, but that band Option. Do you remember them? Yeah, absolutely. Option, we were uh, a Long Island kid, long story short, wound a very close friend of ours, wound up playing in that band. So they were the ones that brought us. They heard of EOD. We probably swapped shows. Like, we brought them down here, and then they brought us to CC's, and we were also pretty shocked. I remember driving to CC's, and it was automatically, like, crazy great shows. Like, and, you know, they took care of us. They paid us. You know, they, they fed us. You know, there was there. If you wanted beer, there was fucking beer there, and we just started hitting CCs like every couple of. It seemed like every couple of months. I, I can't really remember, but every time we went back, the shows were getting bigger and bigger. And then we started seeing, you know, doing shows in Albany, and you know, the QE2. It was QE2. It wasn't Bogies. It was QE2, and t- the, the the promoter up there was another great guy that took Teddy care Toll. of us. Paid, Teddy Toll paid us in advance. Like I would show up. And he'd give us a check, give us pizza, and give us beer. It's like, well, like this is like the rock star treatment. Like we're getting everything right away before we even get on stage, you know. And uh, those were great times. And so that's probably around '94. And then, uh, you know, we we started playing. This is pretty interesting. Like pretty big point was uh, around '94. We used to play the Roxy on Long Island. Frank Cariola was the promoter. He liked us, I don't know, maybe because we were just good guys or he saw we were drawing people. And uh, he started putting us on bills with national acts. Like He would call me personally, yo, Tim, uh, Machine Head's coming through next month. I think you should do it. Uh, Typo Negative's coming through Motorhead. Like, we opened up for all these national fucking acts. And those people, you know, that saw us were into us. And, uh, you know, the famous PWAC days are starting to come now. And I remember this phone played the PWAC couple hundred people you know now we're drawing like three to five hundred people on the island shows are crazy things you know we're starting to do shit in the city like now coney island that was another big point was uh seemed like a summer of coney island high we played there with steve poss was the promoter there he would put us on the bills h2o madball rick to life is now around and he's putting us on stuff and like you were saying 
the the New York Hardest Comp was another. That was another big thing. Like when we got on that, things started. Like we got on it. Rick called me. We did it, and then he tells us somehow we wound up being like the opening track. That wasn't supposed to happen, and I don't know how it happened. Maybe it just came out good. I think it's suffer. But when that started to happen, you started, things started to change. You know, with that, you know, this is probably before Kevin Gill, but not too much before. And then we're doing, we're, we're playing, it seems like we're playing with H2O, 25, and Madball. It seemed like every weekend at Coney Island High that things was definitely starting to ramp up now. And then I got this one phone call from Frank Cariola. And from the Roxy, Tim, you're not going to want to miss this. I got fucking corn. So this is early. This is like yeah, yeah, yeah. they exploded. I got corn coming. There's no openers. I can get you guys on the bill. So we did it. Needless to say, the show was fucking slam packed. The next time, a month or two later, we played the PWAC. And we pulled up. And there was a fucking line around the fucking building. And nobody knew that that was coming. So that's that's when things really started to to, to take off, and it, it was like it went from 500 people on the island to like 1,500. Some of the PWACs had like 2,000 people at it. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a couple of little things just because it's it, as a progression of the band. I have to wonder for you guys as a band, was it hard at first to play with the national acts that weren't really tied into the the scene that you were starting to develop with the New York hardcore or for you guys, it was more of a chance to try out a new audience. Like how did you guys go into, especially them first couple shows when you were doing the early support yeah. for the bigger national bands? It just, we just went out and did it. You know, we, it wasn't so much about we're going to try out. We were just like, this is another gig. We got to do it. Let's go. Let's just play it. And yeah, it was weird. There were definitely some shows that, it was just like, what? <laughs> Did we do like when we play with Motorhead? It was like, what are we fucking doing here? You know, it was, uh, I don't remember it going over too well, but we did it and we played well. And then, like, we played with Machine Head. Like, those shows were definitely pretty scattered. And, you know, we played our hearts. I know Rob Flynn still talks to me, like, you know, whenever I do talk about the first time he saw us at the Roxy opening, he said he couldn't fucking believe it. He was really interested. He couldn't believe, like, what was this band? They, they sound hardcore, but they're doing all this. He was very like, he was like, I'm not going to say blown away, but he was very into it. And, uh, you know, so these, these shows, they were just, they were just the things to do. Like we were at that stage in our career. Like we didn't care what it was. We were just going to play, you know, if it was metal, fine, let, let's go. We got nothing to do tonight. Let's go. Let's get out, load up the cars and go play. I'm wondering also it, it how quickly did you look at, the crowds and go fuck like what when did it hit you that you were playing in front of 1500 people did you ever get to that moment you're like fuck we, we need a booking agent like how soon did you have to bring someone in because you're playing in front of 1500 people that you're bringing like how did that because a lot of times and we talked to uh, some of the bands in the 90s and we actually had tim Bohr on the show we had a couple people on the show as like bookers like there were people back then that were just taking advantage of the bands yeah, and not, yeah. and not being forthright and being like, Hey, you guys did good. Here's what you actually get. Like, how was your interaction as you're growing as a band getting treated fairly in the business sense? That was, it was a tough go for VOD in the business sense. It's be, and, and I, I attribute it to the fact, especially from Long Island, when I, when I talking really about the city, you know, but our closed circuit, 
we were like the first bands to be offered like these big deals, these big shows. So we didn't have like somebody going through the going through the shit to come back and be like, "Don't do this. This is a bad idea." We we were like the guinea pigs. So we, you know, we got we got screwed around a lot. You know, in the early days when it was more just, all right, you go to Mama CC and you get paid. That was okay. But like when it started to get, like you said, a little bit bigger, and you're dealing with promoters that don't give a flying fuck about you. Who knows what happened, you know? I just know it was a pretty rough road. But, like, to, to answer your question about, I would say, like, 95, when, like, we started playing, like, the wetlands, and it, it, you'd be in the middle of the city, and the show would be fucking packed. You would, things, that's when, or, like, I remember this one time, it was somebody else's show, and we, me and my friend, we were out doing what we were doing, we wanted to get into the show. We went around the side door, to uh, the wetlands, and we banged on the fucking door. Who, who, who do you think that works the security at those pubs? Like, guys from the scene. Fucking rabies opens up the fucking door. Wow. I look at him, I'm like, hey, what's going on? I'm like, we want to get into the show. And he says his exact words, you're part of the family now, come on in. Like, That's right so then cool. and there, I was like, damn this is yeah. you made it that's the fucking yeah. that's the, you got put in the book that's yeah. great that's fucking great man yeah so that was pretty cool and then needless to say when we when we pulled up to that one show that comes up a lot in interviews is that after that corn show when we played that that our own show at the PWAC, and there was a fucking line wrapped around like a corn show we were just like where the fuck are all these people coming from and it was just i guess our work at the roxy playing with corn it really like VOD just like kind of exploded. Like it went in, it went outside the scene, and went into like a whole different scene, and it all kind of came together for these couple of years in the mid to late nineties that were just fucking berserk. Like I remember another time, we like the first time one of my favorite venues to play in the city is Irving Plaza to this day. I really like that venue; it's a great fucking venue. And the first time we played that was like with. I think uh, it might have been Shelter. I'm pretty sure H2O was on the bill. Us and this band, Weston. And I remember yeah. getting out. Yeah, on from the, PA. Yeah, getting out on stage. Yeah, First of all, the fucking venue was packed. We're like, holy shit. We didn't really have a manager yet, but we were kind of courting these managers that probably got us on the show. And I remember getting out. I used to, Back then, everybody knows this, but I used to use a delay pedal. We didn't have like a front of house guy. I would trigger all the delays. And we stepped out on stage, and they had this screen that was in front of you, you know? And I just hit the pedal to see if it worked. And I just said, like, fuck you, like, just to see if it worked. And it went out, and the whole crowd went fucking crazy. Like, it was just like <laughs> this, like, yeah, like crazy fucking shit. And, I, and then the screen went up, and boom, the place just erupted. And it was these, these moments that were just like, wow, this is fucking, like, just crazy. For me, I think one of the most important aspects of a live VOD show was the complete difference between when you were going hard into the real scratchy, aggressive vocals, but those choruses, I mean, you're talking CCs. I mean, I remember even at the Fury of Five record release party, there's people climbing on pipes to get <laughs> to the stage to say like, it felt like every show that I went to, at that stage where you guys are like the band, people were a buying every VOD hoodie they could get their hands on. Yeah. It was like one of the most ubiquitous pieces of merch in the history of hardcore to this day, <laughs> that or the, the jacket. And also 
just seeing a wall of humans trying to sing because you had that voice and you could immediately switch from this cacophonous growl, real scratchy to this awesome, clean sound. And I think it really, those choruses really drove the fan base because like you're talking about playing with so many bands that are like rhythm, fast bass. They have a, you know, sing along, but like there's very few bands I think ever that could hit those kind of high, higher note choruses. And they were, they were so fucking catchy, man. Like they were at the point where you'd see people getting close to the stage, like no one here, like strategically <laughs> trying to make sure they get to the top of the pile for these sing alongs. And so I've always, cause I, I would see flyers, you know, uh, with you guys playing. And um, we eventually be friends with guys like the guys in uh, anti-race and overthrow and stuff. And they're like, dude, you don't understand like VOD, like where you're giving them props to disciplinary action, which is like a hard, uh, almost like, I don't like, I don't like to call him a skinhead man, but obviously I think yeah, in the eighties yeah. they were a skinhead band, yeah. but then they like became like a straight, more like a regular New York hardcore band. Right. Those were your guys, your entire, you, your performances that you're talking about here. You, you laid deep seeds to take hardcore in Long Island. Like, I mean, the overthrow guys would come down and be like, like, what's it like seeing VOD besides like, you know, and they're like, dude, you could, and they literally were telling me you could see them open for anybody and they were going to kill them. You know, they were like, and, and it's, it's gotta be interesting to see you having the balance, the difference between, or, and I'm so glad you said it, that you just would get on stage and just do you. You weren't concerned like, Oh, this is a metal show. I have to perform this way. You were just like, we're VOD. It doesn't matter what stage we're on. Yeah, no, we just, again, we were so, we were really, we were such a tight unit. We were great friends. Not that we are now, but we were really, it was just this young, fertile time that we didn't have any fucking responsibilities. We're all fucking young. I don't even think I was 20 years old. A lot of these early years, I might've been 19. Like we were fucking young. We had all the time in the world and everybody just wanted to fucking go. And it was like, you didn't, like looking back and thinking, like I wasn't even trying to like make it. I was just this is what I did, and I loved it so much. And the, the feeling I got from it, 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 it was it was better than any drug I've ever done. And it, you cannot, you can't even put a finger on what it's like to be a part of that and to see it. You know, it's it's really crazy when you stop and you have these interviews and you go back in your mind and you see how fragile and special. And sadly, short these times were, but they were truly just something that will not be replicated. Like all these, it was just all these bands were like the Mad Balls and the H2Os and 25 to Life and Sub Zero, and then all these Mind Over Matter, you know, Berserkers, all these bands from Long Island were just kind of silent majority. They were all just fucking getting bigger and bigger all at the same time. And it all just fucking dropped. And then you, it was like a whole, it was a scene. You go anywhere. You knew a lot of people. People would support each other's bands. And you'd go anywhere from way out on the island. Like, we were playing the P-Wack with Madball all the way out there. And then we'd play fucking CBs or something in here. Go up to fucking, it was like a whole Northeast thing, you know? Go to Pennsylvania, play CC's. Rick to Life's got his fucking merch booth set up. We're all hanging out. He's playing, we're playing. It was just, every. it was, it was a cool time to be around, you know? You guys played a weekend, the exact weekend my daughter was born. Oh, so nice. I'm like six, I'm like sixteen, thirty, seventeen, and my daughter's born. <laughs> and the next day, you guys played the church with floor punch, uh-huh. and then you guys would play a show like two days after that, 
at Middlesex County College that was like another one of them. Yeah. Holy fuck. Yeah. And I, 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 for me personally, and, and I, I, I said this to you off air and on air, the, the kind of things that we were looking for were escape. Right. And so driving the CCs, I think I even saw you like the Bristol Bristol Skate Park one time. Yeah. Like you guys were, you guys played so many fucking places, not just the regular tracks like you're talking about, but like you guys would just play places and everybody was into you. And for me, like you know, I'm a 16 year old who's about to be a dad, not really enjoying things. Right. So hardcore was such an escape, and just having those blissful times where you're watching everybody, it was like, it was just something a special time. And I have to wonder. As you're doing this and you're just loving it, how quickly did the like the weird aspect where not just not not the cool part where rabies like now you're in the New York hardcore family, but like right. how quick did it come where the people who were like, let's try to monetize this, let's show you like you know like because you said making it, but how quickly did it come where it was people talking about making it or getting you guys bigger and like what was your first reactions as that kind of talk was being brought to the band? It was like, you know, it came on very quickly, you know, I would say like, like we were just talking, like I would say 96, it started to, you know, the, the business types. And again, like we said, we're not here to talk shit about anybody, so I'm not going to name any names, but the business types started coming around, like right around 96, you know, there, one of them was, uh, I think, you know, uh, you remember the Mantis Green out, yeah. that was a club that was open for a while out there. We played there with Shelter, and that was the first time Ray Capo came up to me. He was like, "You guys, what the? F- you got you guys are fucking amazing." And he started talking to us about an imprint, like he's got a label, and he was really blown away. And he, you know, he would really liked to talk to us more. And I'm we're fucking talking to Ray Capo. It's just like, what the fuck, man? You know. And then, like I said, we started getting management kind of knocking on our doors, booking agents kind of knocking on our doors. And um, then came the record label, and you know we 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 were in bed with Roadrunner. You know they were uh, they were they were around, and again we were very young. We it's just just did all this hard fucking work. There hasn't really been a negative thing that has happened yet. You know we were still we were still kind of riding up the wave, like you know what I mean. Like we were doing, we were selling clubs out everywhere. And by by now. Now it's like the VOD everybody talks about, like full steam, nothing fucking getting in our way. And then the, the record people start coming around. And uh, that was probably 96, 90, you know, I think we put our first record out in 97. So, uh, you know, Roadrunner started sticking their beacon and then we had this management. And yeah, they were like, let's get you up on, we, you know, you sign with us, we'll get you on Ozfest. And, you know, this is when we started doing our first, our first tour was with, with was with Madball, but it was only like three weeks, and it only went as far as like Michigan, and then it kind of doubled back DC, up the coast, and shit like that. And it was fucking awesome. But now you're playing, you're not playing just for a weekend. You're playing every fucking night. You know, I'm starting to wonder: is my voice gonna be? <laughs> you know, all these all this new time, new jack shit that you think about. At least I did as a singer. Am I going to be able to do this every night? Is my voice, my voice is, is going to work? But, it, it, you know, needless to say, it worked. But, like, and then we did our first national tour with um, Downset, Downset, Earth Crisis. And now we got a booking agent. So now the booking agent is just giving us a fucking, like, a sheet 
and you're going out doing all these shows. You're gone for like a month or so. And uh, then we got courted by sick of it all. I know I might be rambling, but I'm trying to. No, 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 no. This is, this is exactly, I love the train of thought. You're not yeah. rambling at all. Yeah. So we like, we were, uh, you know, we did the national tour with Downset. And again, now we're starting to break out West and we're starting to like outsell them in merch. Like it was fucking crazy what was going on. Like we played, uh, Berkeley was probably our first California show. Berkeley Square. Yeah. And that was like a huge moment for me and us. Now, and now we're in fucking California. Like this is fucking crazy. And we just fucking ripped into it. You turn around, Laws from Rancid was hanging out. It was just like, what the fuck, man? This is fucking crazy. And, uh, we ripped into the songs. The crowd's going fucking crazy. We sold a ton of fucking merch. Like, we're going crazy. And then I remember we got home from that tour, and somehow we were selling thousand, like a thousand, whatever, every night, killing it on merch. Somehow we owed money to the merch company. It was just like, what? What the fuck? And it, this was Blue Grape, and I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they yeah, were very familiar. Yeah, it was like basically Roadrunner, Blue Grape, and you look back. I still am amazed on like, like look i don't need money i do i do okay on my own and like but it just musicians it's just insane because nothing has changed like people should be getting paid for this shit and like that's a whole nother story but like right around now we put out this amazing the green drip record it's fucking vod's at full fucking steam we do we got like i said we got quoted by sick of it all i think we played the roxy in uh in the city there's like fucking 2300 people there sick of it all i remember it's pete and it might have been armand but i definitely remember pete they were kind of in their jackets kind of pulled me over to my management brought me over them pulled us over to the sides and they were just like we really like you guys you want to come to europe with us and it's just like all this crazy shit's happening so this is an interesting thing you want to know all right so we got that show with, I mean, that tour. Now we're going to fucking Europe. Like, this is all happening in a matter of, like, six months. Like, you do your first national tour. Now you're home for, like, two weeks. You do the Roxy. It's fucking packed. Then you're getting on a plane. You're going to fucking Europe. We get to Europe. We play our first show in Amsterdam. It's like a seven-week tour in fucking, uh, you know, in Europe. And, you know, Europe is kind of notorious. You know, we can get into that later. But anyway, my... By then, we still didn't have, like, we still kind of had our friends working for us. We had management. We had a booking agent, like, real deal. But we still had, like, our friend was the tour manager, our other friends, like, the drum tech. And he goes after the show to uh, <clears throat> Sick, of it All's, Sick of It All's manager and says, all right, so are we getting, can we get our money now? And he, like, turns and looks at him. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, are we going to... We just want to collect our guarantee. We'll be on our way. He's like, no, no. Did somebody not tell you this is a promotional tour? You guys aren't getting paid. And it was just like, what the fuck? Like, we're in Europe. We got a tour bus sitting outside. And somebody didn't tell us that we're actually not getting paid for this fucking tour. And they were just, like, looking at us like, are you guys fucking crazy? Are you crazy? No, you know. And uh, if the management somehow fucked it all up. I remember we all got on the phone. She was like asleep. We're like, get the fuck up. We're not getting fucking. What, what happened? And sick of it all, being sick of it all. We're not, they, they were, that was their heyday. They were doing well every night we sold out. They decided to give us $500 a night out of their guarantee. But this is where the darkness starts to seep in. Like now, you know, the band's big, but things are not quite as they seem, especially on the business aspect, you know? 
And uh, so that was fucking insane, you know. And then, uh, you know, right after that, we did that. And, you know, we did pretty well in Europe. But sick of it all is sick of it all. And they're going to draw. And we're talking about the... the, the, the that's pretty much the height of what them guys are. Yeah, that's the big yeah, records around. They, they East draw, West is behind them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they draw a very specific audience in Europe, which basically they, what I'm getting at is they just want to see fucking sick of it all or something very much like it. Like they want to see a traditional hardcore band. You know, VOD gets up, we do our thing. And, you know, it was kind of hit or miss. There was some nights we did really well and other nights not so much. You know, I remember... Uh, one night in particular, we played Cologne, Germany, and it was packed. It was probably like, what, 1,600 people? It was like a big venue, giant fucking stage. Fucking venue's kind of cold when you get out there. Like, I hate shit like that. And uh, I was in, like, this weird violence phase where I wasn't wearing shorts and no shoes on stage while I was playing. And we went through every song. After every song, not a peep. The crowd was fucking dead silent, just staring at us. The one thing that was said was, your feet stink. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> most European thing. Possible. Yeah, no, it was it was the, it was a tough run, but we you know we survived it, and then from there we went right into Ozfest, and now was our real first exposure to like what the metal bands kind of get. Like there was very specific deals, and you might have heard this. Like there's the hardcore band record deal on Roadrunner, and then there was the metal band record deal. Needless to say, the metal band record deals were made way more lucrative, had better returns, longer tour support. Like, they were given the proper push. Sure, you know, they did okay for us, but it was very, very black and white as, as we were learning. And uh, now you're on OzFest. We're like the only band, you know, we, we did well on OzFest, but we were the only band that didn't have a tour bus. You got, you know, you're turning around, Pete Steele's hanging out, fucking... The singer of Pan Phil Anselmo's around. Like, it's just, you're, now you're in, it, we called it like Rockstar Summer Camp. It was very, it was pretty awkward for a while. You know, we were on the side stage with Cold Chamber, Downset, who we were friends with. So that was fine. And then the only other band that didn't have a bus was uh, Neurosis. So we got along with them very well. And that they, they were cool. We had a lot of fun with them. And, uh, but again, now, you know, you're kind of going up. I remember. They did like some stupid rotating stage. You played twice a day. And, you know, one day you would get up and you'd be playing at like 9.50 in the morning. Like you're playing OzFest, but you're actually yeah. today, you're only playing to like an empty parking lot and like the kids walking in on the line, like cheering from like the chain link fence, like <laughs> hundreds of feet away, you know? Meanwhile, you're getting charged thousands of dollars by your label for being uh, on it, right? Who, who knows what kind of deal was worked out, but basically I know we were definitely part of a package and it was basically concrete management package. So they concrete management, we were under them, but managed by like their side managers. But you had, they had, uh, I think Pantera was their band. It might've been Typo, Power Man, and then they kind of just got us on. So we obviously got on that tour through their pull, you know, and, uh, you know, we did well. It sold a lot of records for us, and people, you know, I think we definitely scored some goals on that tour, but it was, you know, there was another reality check that there's just this whole nother world that we really haven't even tapped yet. And do we even, like I was thinking, do I even want to tap into this fucking world? And, you know, 
people want to people ask a lot about imprint and why and you're just going to kind of answer this part imprint and why it's so fucking aggressive and redlined for me vocally and i would say a lot of the music it was a complete reaction to what we saw and felt on ozfest because in some ways ozfest was great but in other ways it was a weird place that i didn't fucking feel like that i fit in and not, not that i gave a shit but it wasn't it wasn't all fucking high fives and bros it was weird we were like this weird band that was in a van up against like these fucking super rock stars you're talking about Marilyn Manson at like his fucking peak, Pantera at their peak. Although we got along very well with Pantera, because Phil was into like hardcore bands, and then uh, Rob Flynn from Machine Head, he he saw us back at the Roxy, so he was really really cool to us. And then like the Roses and Downson, but otherwise it was very Snoop in the Air type people walking around back there, and it was weird. <laughs> What's always the perception of people who aren't you is that there's this like glass staircase that you guys were trying to run up. Like we were trying to get away from hardcore. Like we're trying, you know, and the sad thing is listening to you, you sound like every friend that I ever had who got just big enough to play the Ozfest. And it's the same story again and again. There's people telling you, all you got to do is get to this next goal and we can get you here. And then we can get you here. And, and to me, I haven't grown up seeing you in the most hardcore, pure sense of it. It's, it's great to hear your perspective on this because right. I think people who, people from the scene, because people from the scene are dickheads, immediately write a band off the minute they're not playing the smallest club. Right. You know, right. like, look at these fucking guys. Who do they think they are? Dude, you, know, you know, you know, as for VOD and myself, and I always, when stuff like this comes up, I was, I was called the, the cliche sellout thing since like day one. That shit has never bothered me. Because I look, I, I'm just playing fucking music, and if some, I'm just gonna do what I need to do to continue to play. And it wasn't like anybody was running away from anything. We were just going to what was being offered to us. We weren't. You'd be insane not to do like you. You, you join a band. You at least we join because we wanna. We wanna do this. this. Is what we wanna do. This is what we do well. It's what makes us feel good. So if somebody offers you a national fucking tour with Ozzy Osbourne, you're not gonna turn it down. You know, it's just, it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. And <clears throat> we did it, and it was it was a for it was a hard tour. Like that sick of it all tour was very mentally challenging. You know, and then to go right from that, we came home for three fucking days and went right out onto Ozfest, which was basically now you're getting thrown in the ocean with fucking a ton of, a ton of sharks. Like you didn't. It was fucking nuts, man. And it, it's it's not. It was amazing, but it was a fucking roller coaster. Now, I started talking to Mike Gitter. We're going to bring him back on. It's been a while, but sure. Mike Gitter started getting in on the Roadrunner stuff. Yeah. And from other people and from just stuff, at that time, I was working at Cord Magazine and Too Damn Hype. And the way it was explained, because to me, you know, I grew up on the Roadrunner metal records and then the Roadrunner right. hardcore records. So the way it was explained to me is labels that have cash shotgun blast out and they sign all these bands seeing what hits right absolutely and so for me i was befuddled like what the fuck when they're like oh yeah well you know vd vod on roadrunner is not really working out and in my head i'm thinking like that's the one band that i thought would have you know like so 
What do you think came first? Do you think the stress of the touring and the pressure from the labels? Where, where, when you're moving forward and you're getting these opportunities, did someone, if anyone, ever instruct you go, hey, you know, these are metrics we're looking for? Like, what was the band perspective inward as, you know, you go from being something that, you know, Roadrunner wanted so badly, and then next thing you know, you're having like a falling out with them? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was basically. You know, it was all backpats and fucking great shit when we did the green drip. And then a very, uh, you know, this kind of shit happens in the record business. I'll never forget the guy who signed us, Howie Abrams, long story short, told us he's leaving the label. We were like, what? Like, and you know, you don't know, you don't know anything then. It's just like, all right, they'll just get us somebody else. But what they don't tell you, they're going to get somebody who doesn't give a flying fuck about you. And you're going to be put in like a drawer. That didn't happen just yet, because I'm pretty sure when Howie left, Gitta came on. Gitta was very, very passionate, and I think Gitta was was our A&R for Imprint. So long story short, like for the Green Drip and Imprint, it was all backpacks. Like, yeah, there might have been some struggle with Imprint, but things were still kind of going on. Like, we weren't, we weren't feeling it yet. And then... Uh, we did some touring for Imprint. The record got some, you know, some amazing. You know, people really dug that fucking record. But then towards the end of the Imprint cycle, we started to see cracks in the whole Roadrunner regime. Basically, I think, you know, we didn't get too much touring shit in the U.S. I think we went out with Sepultura. We did a couple other things, but nothing like super major. And then we went on like a three fucking like a, the longest fucking. Japanese, we did Japan, the Pacific Rim tour. So it was Japan, Australia, New Zealand. It was like a month and a half on the other edge of the fucking planet. Wow, that's a long time out there, man. Crazy. The tours are usually about a week each or something. You know, that's crazy. Fucking long. I still have a shirt somewhere from it. The fucking back is just fucking dates. And uh, it was a long time to be away. And so basically, you know, imprints getting all this crazy press. It's getting. 5Ks in Kerrang, six stars in this. Like, it's doing really, really well. And we had a pretty much one thing. We're coming to the end of this tour. We're in the Japanese office. We're hanging out. And the guy just kind of turns to us and says, we were kind of just having a conversation about what's going on next. And, you know, I think we're going to go back and write a record, but we don't want to. He's like, yeah, we don't really know what's going on with Roadrunner over there, but we, we wanted you guys back. And uh, we were all ready to book you again, but they said, no, forget VOD, take, take typo negative. And we were just like, what the fuck? Are you fucking, Jeez. are you kidding me? This is what's going, and then we were off like on a plane to go to Australia. And we're all, we're all just like, what the fuck is that bullshit, man? And I think we might've even called in and we were like, what's going on? We were just told this and they're like, no, we think, we think you guys are doing pretty good, but I think it's time you guys come back and do a record. We were just like, are you fucking kidding me? We've only been touring for like less than a year. Like that, that, that can't be. All right. We, well, there might be with this UK runs looking really good. We'll, we'll probably let you guys do that. We'll see what else happens from there. We get back to the States. Like it was a two and a half week tour with Iron Monkey. I don't know if you know who they are, but I I'm, love I'm them. very familiar. Yeah. I thought they were fucking great. So it was a two week tour with them. And a lot of the dates were already sold out. Roadrunner was just like, you know what? Forget it. You're not going to go. Just go back and do a record. That's when we were just like, this is fucking ridiculous. And you feel like that's when it starts to hit you. All right. The tours are over. They're telling you to come back home. 
And it's like, what the, you, you feel very trapped at that, at that moment. I still remember because now I'm home. I'm going to be home for a pretty long time. I don't really have that much money, which means I'm probably going to have to go work. And it's less like, which I never minded working. I don't, it doesn't bother me. But I was a little shocked at that moment that it was happening that quickly. And I remember sitting at my friend's apartment on First Avenue, on First and First. Him, they went out for the night. I was just in a bad mood. I didn't want to go out. But just laying on his floor being like, what the fuck is going on, man? This is fucked up. Like, I, I got a record that's selling. We're fucking selling still. And now I'm fucking home? Like, it was a weird, it was, it was not a good time. And needless to say, that's when the Roadrunner and VOD relationship started to break apart. Now, when you look at things in perspective with hindsight, do you think that going forward, where was VOD's thoughts as far as material you were writing, directions you were taking? There's got to be a lot of animosity. There's got to be a lot of frustrations. And how did it filter out into the music? How did it filter into business decisions? Like, <laughs> it's always because it's always because again, it's like, and it's it's not it's not a tragedy. It's always been a mystery because you know, VOD to people my age are still like that. They're fucking VOD. They're the best. So, right, right, so, right, right. So, you know, like so, I, and I know, but I know that the music industry, the record industry. They don't go with feeling. They don't go with organic. They go with, well, you know, this thing over here is too heavy. So maybe we need to balance this because they're thinking about like a card that's in their hand. Like, well, we already have a heavy band. Like, they're basically yeah. playing with you guys at a time when your band has such inertia moving forward. So how did that go into further releases and directions? Well, it was it was rough because you know, all right, now we're just fucking pissed off. And, you know, now we're angry because we feel like kind of what you said, we still got so much steam on this record. How can they just put us out like that? So basically, long story short was uh, we basically marched back into the office. They were going to owe us. They were the third record. They were going to owe us some decent amount of money to go out and do all, you know, do the whole thing again. You know, it goes off with each record, blah, blah, blah. So we, we were so fed up with them by then, you know, between getting, you know, we're, all right, we're, they stopped the tour, but like, being in debt to fucking Blue Grape, come on. Like, we were really just like, you know, all those sweatshirts you're saying, the most popular fucking thing. Literally. How the fuck did we wind up owing these scumbags fucking money? Like, we were just really pretty disenchanted by by now. And we went in there and basically said, we kind of lied to them. We said, we're going to do another record. It's going to be the most stripped down, four-track style record. We just want to go back to just doing stuff like that. We're not... We're not doing anything else, and uh, that's what you're gonna have to pay us to do, or you can let us off the let us let us off the label right now. And long story short, they would either they didn't want us or they they went for it and they let us go. So now we're kind of like free agents, and we knew we weren't done yet. No one. There was a point when we all looked at each other. That would probably be three or four years from what we're talking about now, when we were just like we're done. At this point, we weren't feeling that yet. We just were like we need to regroup. Hey, we got to get rid of the fucking management. We got to get rid of everybody. And that's when we did the For the Bleeders record, which was basically something we were able to kind of do the deal on our own. I don't even think we had management then. I think we just all brokered it ourselves with uh, Greg from Go-Kart. And we wanted to put something out for the fans. You know, we're still at the studio writing and stuff. We cranked out a couple of new songs for that and then re-recorded the other stuff, put that out. 
we did some touring over that. People seemed into it. Uh, you know, it seemed, I think a lot of people thought we might have been going back to our roots. But we were just, you know, we were doing whatever we wanted to do at that point. These were the songs we were writing. And then after, you know, for the Bleeders, we went out for like a month or two on the road. And, uh, you know, we came back. And again, we were kind of felt dis disenchanted. Like, you know, we weren't, we were still kind of feeling, I think we went to Japan on that record. And it was cool. But then, you know, we started, a lot of the guys in the band, including myself, we started to listen to a lot of different types of music. You know, this is coming into the Bliss era, and uh, we were listening to a lot of sound. Like, our, 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 our music, the stuff we were surrounding ourselves with was kind of changing. Like, we were still listening to, like, metal and hardcore, but we were listening to a lot of other types of stuff, like Radiohead, you know, Soundgarden, Clutch was a lot, a lot of, a lot of Clutch was being played, you know, kind of more, uh, you know, a grass type rock type shit was being in influencing us. And we were kind of at this point where we wanted to kind of do something a little bit different. And that's kind of where the negotiations and the songs started coming out for, uh, for, for bliss that needs to say we're a lot different. I don't have any regrets about it. You know, VOD was always a band that did what they wanted to do. Me as a singer, I my philosophy is as long as I what I what I do as long as it's good and honest and I can sleep at night knowing that it's good, I'm good. You know, I, I'm you know where I'm at now and where I was at this point. I'm still a singer, a musician making music, and I gotta go with where my gut's telling me to go. And uh, in this stage, again, that we're still in bed with music, but now we got some new players coming around. And, you know, the manager we had at that point for, for Bliss, he was a good manager. And uh, he, he, he didn't take any shit. And he was good at getting money deals and getting deals. You know, you need to, to make, back then, you needed money to make records. Like, that's how it was for us. And, you know, he was getting us deals that other people couldn't get us. And that's how we got onto TVT, which... DBT was <laughs> was even more cutthroat than Roadrunner. And uh, this is a real quote, because we had a couple of mutual friends uh, who were on that band Day in a Life, was on TBT before us. We're very close friends with them. And they were talking to the guy from Wreckage Records. You remember Don Fury? Remember that name? Yes. Yep. They were One of the players were talking to him, like on a side note, and being like, oh, yeah, man, VOD's on the label now. It's going to be great. And he, he said he turned to him. And he said, well, that's great, but VOD doesn't realize they just jumped out of the frying pan right into the fire. And basically saying that TVT is a fucked up label. And, you know, it was. They gave us, they put, they had no problem putting up a lot of money. But when it came time to, like, get money back and your record better be fucking selling, they didn't even blink. And they just pulled the fucking plug. And that wow. was like, that was almost like a, a violent death. <laughs> it was just, you know, Roadrunner, we had a good run, and we did well, and things were all up, and then, you know, we, you know, For the Bleeders was cool, like, we, you know, we were doing good, but, you know, VOD, the Bliss did not hit the fans very well. It, it picked up some fans, and I think, looking back on it, people respected what it did, but it was a very strange record for us. It was definitely the wild card, and uh, a lot of the hardcore kids forget it. They didn't. They didn't want anything to do with. They were also at that stage. We're talking two thousand and one, two. I actually say this about a lot about decade changes. Yeah. You know, you got to remember we're talking about. 
I was in my teens when in '97, 2000 came. I was in a band touring in the U.S. and I felt like, wait, there's like, oh my god, we're in a whole new universe. Like, there was a couple stalwarts left from the late '90s, but the beginning of the 2000s, hardcore shifted so greatly, and then started being dominated soon into it by like, like how you were taught about the sick of it all crowd in Europe. Only it was like internet people on message boards who like, well, this band's not as good as, you know, and, and, and it was a sour note for so many amazing bands. And it wasn't just you. Like there were bands that would still do good in the sense of, you know, some bands were still playing maybe in front of two or 500 persons, some of the hardcore bands, but anything that was existing, with the exception of like the converges, yeah. like some of the, you know, a lot of the stuff died out from the nineties in the early two thousands. Yeah. And so right. it wasn't just a VOD thing. It was like a changing of the guard. And we've talked about this multiple times where sometimes a band puts out stuff, you know, and actually I think it's a part of your hardcore legacy because so many bands in hardcore have gone like, well, we did this, you know, we did plan a, we did plan B, we did plan C we're going to write a record that we really fucking like. Right. right. And the fans always attack it. And then what will happen is it's like that toy. Your big brother got tired of playing with someone. will pick it up and go, it was fucking record. was pretty good. I don't know why no one liked it because they're hearing it with fresh ears, you know? Right. Right. And you know, ironically, I think one of the biggest, you know, you know, the Spotify playlist and all that. Bullshit. Yeah. VOD's biggest song is off the list. So go figure. I don't fuck. That's an know. algorithm thing. That's an, <laughs> and that's the other thing is another thing that really hit you guys and the and the record labels were bleeding out bands because they didn't have an answer to Napster. They didn't jump into the digital media quick enough. Right. And so they were so dependent on physical copy sales, they didn't pivot oh. quick enough. Oh my god. As the as the kazaz and the different downloading came. And so, you know, you had fans that weren't recorded, not paying into buying the records. But if you had just been playing shows, I think you guys would have survived, yeah. just because your ba- like the, the 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 fan base was still there, you know. Like, well, you know, it's funny because like whenever we talk about it, you know, you know, you always talk about shit and what what a what a coulda shoulda bullshit. But sometimes we talk about like maybe we should have just stayed on Roadrunner, just did another fucking heavy record, and just just didn't stop. Like if we just because that I think that was like a five to eight record deal. Like they owed us five. Like they couldn't get out until five records were given to them. You know what I mean? So we yeah. did like five records. Then they had options. But like if we just sucked it up, fine. Went back, just wrote another heavy record, and just continued on. We could be having a different conversation. You never really know, but you could have been having a very different conversation. You know. In in hindsight, looking at all this. Uh, as you have new projects still in the works, what's your motivation? Like, what's is the motivation to continue on? Because as a singer, you want to do it. Like, is there any party that's like it's got to be hard to not? And I mean, I've, I, we've had Eddie Leeway on the show. You know, we've had tons of people who have sat there and spoke about you know Chris Williams and Rock Hotel ripping them off. You know, we, we've definitely talked about people who had it in their hand and people in the industry have taken it away. So this is a not an uncommon theme we've talked about. How do you approach making music and doing music now, knowing all the pitfalls and the things that were taken from you uh, at that point, I, you know? It's scary because you don't, you know, I came right out of VOD and I don't, you know, trail off too far into Blood Simple, but. No, you can. No, absolutely. You can so, if you have any you know, wish to. Me and Kennedy just weren't done. You know, you know, 
VOD was done. 2001, the fucking Trade Center went down. Those fucking guys yanked our goddamn tour support again. And, and we were just like, this fucking band is done. Like, we were at that point where we couldn't really sit in the same <laughs> same room anymore. You know, the, the tensions were fucking high, you know. And we were done. VOD, that was it. But me and Kennedy weren't done. And, like, when VOD was, like, kind of skirting out in 2001, we were talking about doing a more grassroots heavy band. You know, that we wanted to do a, a, we just called it a project. So right out of, right, VOD ends September when the Trade Center went down. October, Kennedy's handing me fucking demos. We're building Blood Simple. It takes a couple of fucking years. But that band took off like a fucking rocket. And I do it because it's what I know. And it's what I do. It's what I feel. And I can't really do, do, not do it. And then, yeah, maybe I got lucky and lightning struck twice. And both my bands got pretty fucking big. And I had some great experiences. And I got to make some amazing mu music with some amazing fucking people, talented fucking people. And maybe I'm lucky. I don't know. But it's like, I can't not do it. So, you know, to fast forward, like Blood Simple did its fucking thing and then it didn't. It ended. And then VOD went on to do a couple other records. It's all because it's like, I just, this is what I do. It's what makes me feel good. It's like therapy to me. And it's like, I've been doing it for so long now. I, why the fuck would I stop? I could give you a, a whole bunch of lists why I should, but it doesn't mean I'm going to do it. You know, this is who I am. This is what makes me feel good. Like when I sit down to write songs, I get to, to when the, when they hit right, and when I'm in a groove, everything else disappears. And I could just sit here and write music for an hour this day, two hours that day, maybe take three or four days off and hit it for a whole weekend straight. And come out with fucking nine or ten songs. You know, it's kind of where I'm sitting now. You know, I'm, I got this new project that, you know, I released. It's called Rolling Coffin. Obviously, it's not hardcore. It's not metal. It's just something that I'm writing now. And, you know, big difference about it is I'm writing a lot of the music on guitar. And then I'm going to, you know, put my vocals over it. And then I send it off to my co-writer. And we kind of, we're, we're kind of building a, a sound that, has been a vision of mine for like 10 or 15 years. I just never had the opportunity to do it because the other bands were busy. And right now things have gotten kind of quiet in the last two years. And yeah, I've taken some time off. Maybe I haven't picked up my guitar. Maybe I haven't been down here on my computer writing songs. But sooner or later that itch comes and it gets so fucking loud that I can't, I can't put it down. And I got to sit down and I got to write some music and I got to see the music get out of the basement into the studio and out into the world. And that's what I've been doing over the last year. You know, I've had songs kicking around for a couple of years. I think VOD did their last record in 2016. Yeah, we've done some shows. But the last two years, there hasn't been any shows, whatever the reasons are. I don't really need to get into them. But so I got to be, you know, my name is still out there. I still have an audience out there. I owe it to myself and to them to still put out music and I to anything I owe it to myself it's something I need to do and being able to write these songs and watch them come from like an acoustic guitar at my kitchen table with a notepad to being out on Spotify getting plays getting out into the world getting people saying they really fucking like it that's to me that's what it's all about and for the music business now where I stand like I said I do all what okay on my own I don't need to do this for a living. 
I am very, very careful on who I get involved with. Like I only get involved with people who I sense are going to be passionate about this. I'm tending right now to go to a more grassroots, smaller label that I can kind of keep an eye on. And we, we see the numbers and we're working together to build something. That's kind of, you know, I, Roland Coffin is out on Static Era Records. I don't know if you know the kid Jay Reason. Oh, that's my brother. Yeah. So. <laughs> that's my brother. We, we, we hung out in every state, I think, in the East Coast. Yeah, he's a hate freak <laughs> you know? kid. He was, like, yeah. he was like a big, big VOD fan. Absolutely. And like, yeah, and he's, he's, he's a great guy. And through a buddy of mine, he's got a record label. So I, I went to him and I approached him. And we've been doing really well. You know, we're going to have, I'm going back into the studio January 10th to record two more songs. And then this spring, we're going to be putting out an EP of this Roland Coffin stuff. And it's, uh, it's great. I really enjoy it. I'm getting some, you know, some, some people really seem to be into it. And it's a different, it's different for me. Still got an edge to it from what I've heard from some people. It's not that much of a departure, but it is different, but I got to keep it different. That's, that's just, I got to keep it moving. And if BOD, everybody wants to get together and do shows again, you want to do another record, you know, that conversation can happen. It's all good. I'm glad you have that, um, that the duality in that. I don't think if Tim Williams had music out that there wouldn't be something that resonates from VOD as far as influence. But, you know, you're always going to branch out and go further. And my biggest concern, not only as a, festival promoter and longtime VOD fan, but just understanding the direction of people. It would have been sad to hear that you were stigmatized by all the things that didn't work for VOD to the point where you wouldn't want to play again. And so it's good to hear that you're still open. Um, yeah. I'm going to hit you with a, I know we were talking about a shorter one, so I'm going to hit you with a couple quick questions. I know you got a lot going on. Sure. So in, in terms of looking through this timeline, I think right now, doing a band like you're talking about doing there's less red tape there's less there's less of the things that these record labels can do specifically to just charge and charge and charge because they were living off the fat of the land you know like right. when you brought up shelter you know there was a time when shelter could put a record out and they might sell x amount of tens of thousands of records so it's like now there's record there's records on the charts that if they did 15,000 copies people are like well that's a big deal <laughs> you know right. because so uh, much is digital so there's a better accounting for smaller artists at the outset right and like we were talking about being on your computer not only just doing things like this but you have better access to your fans directly through social media oh, wow. and you have a better metric so when you said when you said the line about you know you owe it to fans there's no way especially because you are active on social media that you're not going to encounter people that are not only VOD fans, but follow you in the blood simple. So I think, you know, this new project, you have the best capabilities in your hand to not only control your destiny here, but you see it forthright. You know, you see, Hey, you know, here's the downloads. Here's what we were bought. You know, like it's harder to hide the money. It's not all cash anymore. Right. And so I do think that you have the opportunity. And I think that, it's looking at the world of the VOD stuff. It's like to this day, you know, especially with the nature of long Island. I mean, we're talking now there's generations of long Island hardcore kids to this day. They're like, yo, VOD, 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 <laughs> you know, like because of how much it resonated and passed down, like we were talking right. about. So it's just a good, it sounds like you're still in the right mindset 
But I, I wonder if for you that because of what you got into music to do was like this cathartic release that when you weren't performing or writing that you didn't have moments where you're like, we like, Oh fuck. You know, like I'm not for me, if I don't do certain things, my head goes, what, what's going on? Oh yeah. I haven't done this in a while. It's got to eaten you up when you weren't writing or you weren't performing. And then, so it's got to be good to get that itch back, you know? No, it's great. And yeah, no, you know, sometimes you're ready for a break. There's been plenty of times <laughs> that I've been like, fuck this. <laughs> I need some time away from this fucking scene. Or I'm going to like die or something. But, uh, you know, a lot, you know, a lot has changed for me. You know, I'm in a, I'm in a better place. Like, you know, I've been sober now for like fucking 13 years and, you know, I just have a whole different mindset. You know, I get so much more done now. And, you know, I'd say one of the biggest things is like things that were like important when I was a fucking maniac running around in my early 20s and teens with VOD. They're just not as important anymore. Like I, I'm, I have such a different perspective on life, like where I'm okay, you know, recording and writing my music as long as I'm doing that. And like I said, as long as I know it's good, as long as I know I put 100% into it and it's honest, that's all I can really, that's all I can really hope for and, and expect. Like, I don't have any expectations. Of course, you know, I want to play and get it, get out there and maybe bring this, this band to a live setting and stuff like that. And that, that, that kind of stuff will happen. But, you know, it's for me, the breaks when they get too long yeah things start rattling around my head that it's just i gotta i gotta do something you know and we suffered some pretty heavy blows through both bands but you know that's the business you know you gotta know that when you're coming into it or at least now looking back on it yeah some crazy shit happened to us but that it's a it's a cutthroat business and i'd say on the brighter side like you were just kind of getting into with all the technology I remember listening to Jamie's, you know, Hatebreed's podcast a couple months ago, and he just said just the line like the, the gatekeepers are gone. And that is very, very, very true. The people that used to hold all the fucking cards, they don't exist anymore. Don't get me wrong. There's definitely still some gatekeepers out there, but not like it used to be. You can really, if you put out a quality product, meaning songs or records, you can really get them out into the world. And like me, you know, I have Tim Williams folks is my Instagram page. I'm very active on that. And, uh, you know, you could put together t-shirt bundles and sell, sell them yourself, you know, through your, through, through Instagram these days. Absolutely. So you couldn't, Absolutely. you couldn't do that back then. No fucking way. You know, um, getting it now that you brought up the sobriety thing, what do you think you hit your threshold moment? Where like did, was it someone else that let you in, or did you like were you cognizant? You know, like obviously, thirteen years of sobriety is a major is a major landmark, and it's good that you're on that path. But was it something that you were recognized, or did you have to get brought into like, hey, by the way, this is starting to be a problem? Like, yeah. when did you at, when did you acknowledge and start dealing with your drinking issues? Two thousand and eight, right, right at the tail end of Blood Simple. You know, basically, my life came to. Basically, my life imploded. Things were, you know, things got really, really bad. And uh, I, I would say I was kind of just beaten into submission and crawled into sobriety. And I, I was very, very lucky that I've stayed in and not veered out. 
and uh, it's been it's been a rough 13 years. But you know, the first couple years in sobriety were not fucking easy for me at all. A lot of white knuckling, a lot of confusion. You know, it was not easy. But uh, you know, I found the things that worked for me. And I was, you know, as time went on, things got better and I got more comfortable in my skin. You know, all those years of partying and drinking and playing rock star, a lot of that time I was just hiding. And, you know, I was doing a lot of crazy things for a lot of years. And as I got older, you know, when you're young, you don't really have that much to lose. You don't really have much responsibility. But as you get older, whether you like it or not, you're accumulating things in your life and you start making stupid decisions if they get really bad, there's a good chance you're going to lose it. And I lost everything. And it was it was not good. It was bad. And I needed to clean up. There was no way I was going forward. Things were just going to continue to get worse if I didn't. So, like, my moment was definitely in 2008, right at the tail end of Blood Simple. And needless to say, I was the one that put, put a nail in Blood Simple's coffin. I had to face those guys and say, I got to be done. I got to fucking quit. I can't go on like this. And that was fucking hard. And uh, there, you know, we got through that, you know, and the, but it was not easy. And, you know, thank God, 13 years later, you know, I feel real good. No, no, no thought of ever going back to the way I was living. You know, it was, a, it was rough and a lot of people got hurt. People died. Not good. I'm having. I have to wonder if, if you're in comparison. So, VOD starts. It's small. It's small venues. Small things. Things get be bigger, but you're still part of like the hardcore scene. And then, as you're growing as a band, and you go from the scene to like the industry, and then you go from the industry to, you know, small clubs to bigger shows. These Ozfest. Do you think as you band grew the partying was more rampant or do you think it was just as just as prevalent when you're playing the small cc's and the different stuff like or do you think it was the stresses or the the stuff over your head as your band was getting bigger like where do you think your drinking grew if you had to pick grew, one well it grew like vod it was it was already there i think everybody was kind of partying but it was kind of friendly and loose you know i would say things got started to get real dark when i moved into the city and, uh, you know, uh, you know, blood simple, like VOD always kind of, we, we partied, we went nuts. Things were fucking crazy, believe me. But there was always kind of like a watchful, unspoken eye where guys wouldn't really go too far. Some of us did, but, you know, it was more kind of hidden behind closed doors. Whereas blood simple, everything was just out in the open. It was full on, you know, when people say, the record business can en enable you to behave like this. That's what was going on. Like you were just encouraged, enabled to just behave like a fucking lunatic. And the crazier you are, the happier people were around. It was just fucking berserk. And it was, it was, it didn't stop. You know, the parties did not it just, you came off tour. There was even like a bigger party because you're living in the fucking city. Everybody knows you. People are hanging around, and it's just, it's fucking crazy, man. And it really was, and it, it, it all caught up, you know? Like, like you've, you've probably heard from many people, but these stories happen. And, you know, things, things just really got really crazy really fast. And I would say 
towards the end of Blood Simple was a combination of everything. The amount of traveling that we were doing, I was starting to get a lot of pressure on the home front. I was starting to get a lot of pressure where I was in my life and is this band, are we just traveling and do or is this actually fucking providing? Like what's going on? And it was there was a ton of pressure towards like the second the second Blood Simple record and the amount of touring, the, the, the size of the tours we were doing were just pure rock star tours. They were fucking crazy. And they were huge. The tours were fucking huge. And it was all over the world from like 2005 to 2008 nonstop. And it was, it was, it was nuts. And it all fucking came to a screeching halt. <laughs> yeah, I remember you guys played this hardcore in 2009. And, um, you briefly had mentioned that you were getting sober and I was actually excited. I'm thinking like, well, if he's getting sober, maybe like playing hardcore shows, so it might be like the best thing for you. <laughs> but I know, um, for me, I just love the trajectory in your story that you just gave us. I mean, Thank you. It, it's important that people understand that you're still around. And I think that so many people, and, and the fucked up thing is, I don't think that you even were cognizant because it happened so fast, but it's in them shows. Like it's in them moments where you're on stage just playing a song that you and Mike probably wrote when you guys were like in your teens <laughs> that you were giving people like us who were having bad things at home. This was our release. And yet it was a shared release. Cause for you, you didn't, you know, this is what you were always hoping to have. Right. And so hearing you still have a positivity about music that you have coming out, the opportunity to potentially do more VOD if it ever comes around. Sure. It shows that you weren't beaten by all these things that just didn't work out your way, you know? Nah, you know, at some point, yeah, I did feel beaten. But like I said, this is, this, the, everything, this is in me. This music, this stuff is in me. Everything else, that's just outside shit. It's like, that, that's the outside. You know, all the people, all the business deals, all that shit. This, this stuff is in me. And it's something that, I won't let go of, you know, it's just, a, it just, it's just not going to happen. It didn't happen. It's still, it's still going. <laughs> nah, it's fucking awesome. Um, so give us your social medias. Let us know how we, people can reach out to you. Sure. Well, the most active one would be, uh, Tim Williams folks. That's the one I'm usually on all the time. Uh, Roland Coffin is the new band. That's Roland Coffin's on Instagram as well. And uh, needless to say, I'm always checking. I think everybody knows that Vision of Disorder has their own Instagram as well. So I'm always kind of poking around on that. But that's like my main channel. I'm mainly active on Instagram. I don't have like 100 different handles. No, I really appreciate you. And we're going to, we every episode, I always tell everybody to go to TIHCpodcast.com. I always hyperlink all the social medias. Tim, the the journey from just being a fan of music and trying to be a singer to what you accomplished, what you lived through seeing the real evils and the way that potential can be just robbed by fucking villains is right. kind of like when, you know, like we were talking and there, actually there's a book. I haven't finished it yet when it talks about how the industry targeted independent music from their, uh, from the mid nineties to the mid two thousands. Got Dan, Dan Ozzy, wrote a book about it and I, and it, and it just shows you the targeting. And I think that it's not a tragedy because you're still here. You're still pushing forward the sobriety um, though. Your fans can still reach out to you and that your presence in the music scene then and now is appreciated. 
and I just appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. No, thanks for having me. It's been great. You know, it's, I've known you for a while. It was good to, to get the call from you. It's good to come down. You know, I look forward to it. Send me any links or any if you're putting any promo cards up so I can blast them all over our sites as well. All right, man. Thank you so much. You got it, man. There you have it. There is a great story from Tim Williams, Vision of Disorder. This is one of these things, man, where uh, a perspective, it's it's not without irony that we have this shit happening in the Twitter world with the various online publications that just run tweets based, uh, they run articles based upon tweets and, and they don't get the story right and I think a lot of people read 90 zines may have had a different impression of Tim Williams and the the direction that the band was going and its intentions but I'm gonna tell you what if you were there and you saw Visitor's Order and you saw that fucking fire in them man it was something special I hope one day that we can have them come back. It would be great to see that one more time. Just that fucking energy. I mean, there's nothing. There was very few bands like it. And maybe we'll get Tim back on the show. It was a fun conversation. I love to hear people as they change and they start building themselves up. They find their sobriety. It's an uplifting story. And um, all the links, as always, are on our website, tihcpodcast.com. That's where you can find everything. And make sure you are supporting. We're going to be having all the links for the Marco Fund Me, the links for you to check out Shackled and From Within Records. And of course, our brothers in Post America Podcast, the Broadsheet Breakdown, and the Rule of Three Podcast. Make sure you're checking that out. And the next time you'll be hearing my voice on the next episode will be Christmas Eve, and hopefully we have some presents for you. So. Thank you once again for listening. Take care, everybody.